What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week, our guest is one Scott Edwards. Scott is a a man of many things. Mm, <laughs> He's yes. owned comedy st- uh, clubs to life insurance and submarines. travel agencies to submarines. <laughs> now, before the show, that one really got me because uh, one of the things that he mentioned about himself was he owned a submarine. Not a lot of people can say that. And, uh, you know, that fascinated me. And for that alone, I said, we have to talk to him. <laughs> That's what sold Jerry. This is how our process goes, people. Jerry sees something that he says, wow, and then we're good. <laughs> yeah, you, have, you know how goldfish, when they see something shiny, they, they go after it? Mm, I'm that goldfish on this show. <clears throat> that's Barracuda. So we go through with Scott all sorts of things on his career of what it was like to own a comedy club for 20 plus years and mm-hmm. what's next. And how does one come to own a comedy club, especially a mm. successful one? What is happening, you beautiful bastards? And to be honest, looking at you, you don't resemble a grizzly bear at all. There's no hair. There's no hair. Uh, the stature, though, is there. Ah, I actually usually usually call him a gorilla. Yeah, that works too. You've he's seen very, him. Naked. He's very much. Oh yeah, yeah. And it looks a lot like a silverback. You know, very wide, <laughs> uh, long arms, tiny wiener, small brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you're having fun, congrats on your podcast. Thanks, man. We have a lot of fun on here. We enjoy the conversation. We do. It's a lot of work, but well worth it. Definitely. Um, you have a, you have a podcast too, or no? Yes, uh, stand up comedy. Your host and MC. It's a celebration of forty plus years in the uh, uh, stand up comedy business. I'm a producer. Mm-hmm. I'm not a comic myself, but I've worked with some of the best. Now, did you own your own like? I had a chain of comedy clubs. I had three of them. Where at? Sacramento, California, Citrus Heights, California, and Stockton, California. Cool. How the hell did you start that off? I'll try to keep it a short story, but I was selling life insurance when I was uh, 23 years old and absolutely hated it. And I went on vacation to uh, LA with my girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, soon-to-be ex-wife. And we went by the satellite room of the comedy store uh, by UCLA in a little town called Westwood. And I went into that. My dad said, you got to go check this out. And I go into this comedy club and it was Sandra Bernhardt, Dave Couillet, George Wallace, a number of comics. And I was just like blown away. This was like the best thing I'd ever seen. We stayed the whole night. And then after the show, I introduced myself to the comics and collected information. And on the drive home, I said, Uh, I got to do this. And I got back to Sacramento and I quit my job and I went bankrupt so that there was no financial ties. And I wheeled and dealed my way into opening my first comedy club. It was in August of 1980, I think before you were born. And uh, uh, it was the 12th club in the entire US at the time. Really? Yeah, it was uh, in my opening act, my opening act making $150 a week was Gary Shandling. That's pretty crazy from going selling life insurance to just open up a comedy store. Well, yeah, well, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur. That was actually my third business. 
Uh, I opened up a small construction company when I was 17 and did some disco in the late 70s. So, uh, so this was this, I had experience in starting companies, but not uh, a comedy club, which turned into a restaurant, which turned into a chain of restaurants and nightclubs. So it was a, a huge experience. Was the disco and construction job related? Like, not at all. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, it was all different adventures and they all had different, they were all successful, but in different levels. Uh, the comedy club chain was uh, by far the most lucrative in the 80s. Money was really flowing. And uh, I was able to take that money and I opened up some other restaurants, some art galleries. I even owned a submarine for a while. Oh yeah, we, I was gonna. I was gonna this. get to that. I just. So, I just noticed today that you had a submarine. But uh, before we get to that, uh, yeah, that was late. That's that's kind of uh, an interesting decision to go with opening a club because uh, I know some people who do entertainment type work, and from what I've seen, their typical response to seeing something like you know they go to a comedy club and they think it's the greatest thing they've ever seen, they say I want to do that, which to them is they want to be a comedian. Now, why did you? <laughs> why did you choose? hosting comedians instead of becoming one that's a you know you're the first one to ask that and i've done about 50 of these um and that's interesting i have always been um i guess a probably a little bit of a control freak as opposed to a showman mm. so even though i emceed my shows my drive in opening a comedy club was to produce and direct and it's a different thing I never had that itch to quote unquote perform I never wrote material I, I never did jokes on stage I mean I had probably had more stage time than any of the comics I got to work with because I was on stage every night seven shows a week for 21 years but uh, and I was considered fairly funny but it was all just MC interacting with the audience stuff I, I was never quote unquote a comic mm -hmm. but to answer your question I think it was just that, you know, I was a brick and mortar guy. How can I turn this, you know, how can I emulate what the comedy store was doing in Hollywood in Sacramento? Now on the, the directing side of it, how hard is it to produce and direct comedians? They don't seem like the most organized people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it uh, does. Uh, you're absolutely correct, Grizz. It doesn't work in general comics or entertainers. And so that's their focus is being creative and writing material and engaging with audiences. The business side is not usually their forte, but as a producer or director of a show, you're the business side, right? So um, back in those days, I was paying them to entertain. So basically I'm their boss for one week at a time. And so I'd say, look, I prefer clean shows. I want 15 minutes. You go long, you go short, you're in trouble, right? Mm. You know, I, I set guidelines and to try to work around their creative aspect. But as a businessman, which is I am first and foremost, a businessman was to challenge them to, to act like a pro. Yeah. So one of the things that was unique about my chain of comedy clubs is that we were not showcase clubs. We weren't open micers, although we did some of that stuff. We were what were called A rooms, which is basically the last step before 
getting a sitcom or going on the tonight show or, or mm. the next step in your career in the case of karen anderson she went on she started off as a house mc for me and she ended up being the head writer for the ellen DeGeneres show so it's it's kind of the springboard to other things now are your stores still open the club is still open i don't own it anymore i sold it in 2001 uh, I felt a shift in comedy and more importantly, a shift in the audience. Mm. And I, I'd done it for over two decades and I kind of cashed out as they say. There, I've come across a lot of people who have never been to a comedy show. Which is really? Insane. Because it's, it's a shame, been, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. So we, I've actually seen the same thing and I don't know if it's a New England thing or what, because, you know, we have them out here. I'm in Connecticut, which is essentially just a giant suburb. Okay. I'll so, talk slower. Thank you. I appreciate it. The world. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I actually, I just mentioned to Grizz the other day that I struggle to understand a lot of people we work with because the Connecticut accent, if you're, if you're not familiar with it, I did a lot to avoid using it. They string all their <laughs> words together as one word. So there's no real clear break and they don't enunciate anything. So it's one constant mumble. <laughs> it's kind of like being from New York only with an accent. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just like that. Well, you were saying there's uh, not a there's clubs, but people don't uh, partake. Yeah, we, you know, a lot of our clubs are like, you know, little hole in the wall clubs. A lot of them do have open mic, but uh, they're still really good. And I'm surprised how many people we talk to. And this comes up pretty often, actually. Hardly anybody that we know has been. <laughs> I, I'm going to one next Friday. There's fucking fantastic. Hey. Yeah, uh, it's it's. I felt it was one of the best. I mean, I like theater. I like going to the movies. I love going to concerts. But all those, you're in, you're in the audience and you're just an observer of mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In stand-up comedy, the audience, when it's done correctly, become part of the energy, part of the show. Yep. And what I used yeah. to drive my entertainers to do is you want to engage with the audience and relate to the audience because that makes the whole evening that much better, not only for the audience, but also for the entertainer. Yeah, yeah I totally sense. agree with that. If, if you think someone's funny and you're watching them on Netflix or whatever else, when you're in the room with them, it's tenfold. Oh, it's so much wait, better. live comedy is so much better than watching it on uh, YouTube or, or anything. You know, when, when you're involved in that energy, and you're a part of the show, even if you're just applauding and laughing, that makes you part of that, that moment. You know, stand-up mm -hmm. comedy is more a moment of time as opposed to something captured on a screen. It, it uh, uh, is, is really exciting that way. I, I, that's, that's me. I really am into it. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Before the pandemic, I went and saw Bill Burr with my brother-in-law, and it was a fantastic show. And we were laughing the whole time. And I watched Bill Burr again, it was probably last year on TV. And I found it funny, but you know, it wasn't like uh, that same it's experience. Not same. It's not the same at all. I, I wasn't laughing out loud, even though, yeah, that joke was funny, you know, just chuckling inside my head. Yeah, and, and let's explain to your audience that, you know, like when you go see a musician you like, it's always better live, mm -hmm. but still he's playing the same song basically, right? Yeah. And what makes it different is you're there part of the experience. What comedy takes it a step farther because uh, the comics, any professional comic always adapts the material to the room. 
And so the audience directs where the, the show's going to go, where the material's going to go, because they're really part of the experience. And um, like I said earlier, it, it really is a moment in time that even, you know, I produced three TV series and there was plenty of great stand-up comedy on those shows. And if you watch the TV shows, uh, as Grizz said, it's entertaining. But the audience that, that was there live way had a better time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you had spoken about how you had seen a change in comedy and a change in the audience. Was it, you saw what was coming to what, did it go the way you thought it was going to go? It, it is now at the worst possible place it could be. Uh, the woke environment, the liberal environment has swung the pendulum so far to the left that it is, as we're seeing, comics are getting attacked on stage, yeah. materials being critiqued, you know, can't we take a joke, people, you know, yeah, somebody no. does a line and somebody's going to be offended somewhere, you know what, screw them. <laughs> it's it's the joke is meant for the group and for the masses and i'll great, give you a great analogy i grew up with don rickles now i don't know if you guys ever got to see don rickles but his material was all offensive but it was really funny <laughs> and everybody knew it was a joke so nobody was offended it, yeah. it, there's no way he could perform today as funny as he was yeah. because in the old days even if you picked on somebody, maybe if one person out of an audience of 200 or 2000 mm. got offended, you know what? That's the risk you take going to a comedy Absolutely. club. But now it's not just that one person that gets offended, but there'd be 10 or 20 other people that go, oh, they're picking on him. Oh, <laughs> and they t uh, over empathize with them and take that what they saw as an insult. That person probably wasn't even insulted. They were probably yeah. thrilled to be a part of the show. Um, but those people will take it on and then they get angry and it goes on and on and on. And yeah. sometimes it's not even the people at the show that are getting offended. No, we get offended for each it. other now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a better way to say it. Thanks, Jerry. Oh, I'm, I'm good for something once in a while. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's not fair to the entertainers, you know? Um, no. One of the things that's unique about stand-up comedy is you know, when you go and you watch TV or you go to a movie, those actors have a script. They're being told what to say. Or like I said, a musician, he's written a song. He's either playing somebody else's song or his own song. But the song is the song. Stand-up comedy is very, it's the last bastion of free speech. It's very on the fly. I mean, look at Robin Williams. He, he had the same material almost every show. Most people don't realize but it never came out in the same way because yeah. he could do different accents and he could move it around. He could always call on a reference and make a joke because he had such a great Rolodex of information in his head. And by the way, for those of you um, uh, pre 2000, a Rolodex was a way to keep information. <laughs> it's one thing though, that I, I do, it's a positive and a negative to me, the whole like Netflix series thing that they have going on it kind of back in the day robin williams would have his one set now because everyone's seen their set it forces them to come up with new material now that new material might be good it might not be good but mm -hmm. it just it keeps it fresh that's one thing that i like that came from it yeah there's a lot of comics that i work with to this day that got started back in the 80s and 90s and right now there's a big thing it's called dry bar comedy 
and comics of famous and not so famous can get on there and, and share some of their set. And the rule is that once you do it in a show like that, you have to write something new to replace it because, yeah. you, you know, people are getting beat over the head with it. Mm -hmm. uh, an earlier example would be Jay Leno or Jerry Seinfeld would come to my club and practice material before they went on the tonight show, because mm -hmm. once they did it on the tonight show, they didn't yeah, they could never feel they could do it again. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And good comedy material has to be worked. It's like a piece of uh, uh, lumber that you're molding or clay, I guess is a better analogy. You have to keep perfect. working it, reworking it to get it perfect. Yeah, because they're seeing the timing and what drops at what time. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, Jerry, Andy, you guys seem very knowledgeable. <laughs> I'm really good at yeah. fake it till you make it. Uh, as we already established, I'm a, a dumb gorilla. <laughs> oh, no, no. Come on. Come on. I don't mind being a dumb gorilla. I love the dark humor. Bring it on. Yeah, speaking of dark humor, I actually find it really strange that, like, well, let's pick on Gen Z in particular. They're the ones that are up and coming and oh, the loudest Jerry's about offense. Someone. I will. I'm about to offend them. I'm, I'm actually about to expose them. So it, I think it's really weird that they get super offended by everything publicly. But I know a lot of them in early 20s. Was it five years span or so? We'll say. In private, they have some really messed up humor. It's incredibly racist jokes, all kinds of crazy stuff that I think is hysterical. But when you're in a public sphere, they pretend it doesn't happen. And the I worse think some, than it doesn't happen, they act they like they're offended. It. Yeah. But behind closed doors with their friends, they're making the same jokes. And I, it's some kind of weird mass hysteria. I don't understand the psychology behind why they are that way. It's very hypocritical, but we're seeing that in, in politics all the time. And I think to go back to uh, Grizz's point, um, this whole liberal swing, it's a pendulum in life. I think it's starting to come back. I think people are fed up so. with some of the bullshit and, and yeah. they they want free speech. They want to be able to think and say what they want to say without worrying about offended somebody. But it's, it may take a little time to get back to neutral. But the uh, oh, great analogy, um, Bob Saget was the star of Full House and Fuller House. He played this clean, straight up dad. Right. Mm -hmm. But his comedy and, was filthy. <laughs> right, right. And by the way, he wasn't so filthy. He wasn't dirty for the sake of being dirty. No, he was really funny. And a lot of people don't know he was a musician. And a lot of my shows, he had a guitar and he would do really funny limericks and play on songs. And it was always filthy. But um, that's my point is that on stage with a crowd when he's really having fun and really being himself, he was dirty. It was, oh, you know, absolutely. it wasn't F-bombs. It was just dirty material about sex or this or that. But on TV, of course, he had to play the straight and narrow uh, character of Danny and be the father image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, as a, a kid in the 90s, of course, I watched that show. And it blew my mind the first time I ever saw him doing oh, stand-up. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, oh. he and Dave Coulier were regulars at my club. Um, and uh, worked it many times. In fact, one of the last shows that the three of us worked together was the uh, uh, 1999 slash 2000 New Year's party uh, starred Bob Saget and Dave Coulier with the show. And we had so much fun. But uh, uh, Dave Coulier and I uh, were good friends. He was at my uh, bachelor party. Um, 
the uh, Bob Saget was one of the guys that really supported me early on, gave me a lot of advice, him and Dave Coulier, and uh, he helped me produce uh, my first TV commercial with him in it, never charged me a dime. Uh, and of course, he wasn't famous then. He, mm -hmm. This was before Full House and before a lot of his fame, but he was still a great guy, really a good actor and very funny. And uh, he and Dave Coulier were really important uh, with, along with Gary Shandling and George Wallace in the inception of uh, Laughs Unlimited and the success I had. What was the first comedian you saw where like, when they were done with the crowd and everything and it just blew you away? Well, a lot of times people will ask me, who's your favorite comic? And I can't say because I've worked with everybody from Soupy Sales and Pat Paulson, which is a generation before you guys, Mm -hmm. actually probably two generations, to uh, Graham Chapman of Monty Python fame, um, Emo Phillips, who's kind of weird and bizarre, mm -hmm. uh, Bobcat Goldthwait, uh, Ray Romano, mm -hmm. Ellen DeGeneres, all these people work for me. However, I always like to share that even though I can't pick a favorite, if I was to sit down and watch a comedy show, everybody out there in your podcast should Google Larry Miller. And you'll immediately recognize him. He's done over a thousand movies and TV shows. But Larry Miller had one of the best comedy sets because he didn't do joke, joke, joke. I mean, Stephen Wright was really funny in, in just jokes, right? Mm -hmm. Or the right. unknown comic. It was just joke, joke, joke. Larry Miller would tell a 15-minute story and have you laughing all the way through and then have a huge payoff. I mean, it takes a real talent to be able to do that. Now, those are my favorite kind, actually. So I also don't have a favorite comedian. I'm actually not well-versed on comedians. But uh, the kind that I enjoy the most are the, the storytellers. Obviously, I like a good dad joke. I tell him to grizz at work all day. He's tired of hearing him. But, you know, it, I don't think I'd want to sit through a 30-minute or 60-minute set of just joke after joke. Uh, uh, of it, dad jokes? Good God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a reason for that, Jerry, and that's because there's more uh you're relating to the audience a little more when mm -hmm. you tell a story you're engaging them in the story so you're taking them down a path and you're throwing in jokes but they're waiting you know they're they're involved in the story it, mm -hmm. it's basically storytelling in a comedy format and um i would agree i think with you jerry that that's my favorite kind of comedy but i gotta be honest i'm pretty eclectic you know i like mm -hmm. demo phillips Paula Poundstone got her start at my club when she first came out from Boston. She's very esoteric, right? Robin Williams worked for me twice. I mean, I've seen some of the best of the best and they work for me, but it was the storytellers. Uh, Milt Abel's a good example. Uh, Tim Bedore, Tom McTeague. I could throw out all kinds of names. Uh, Steve Bruner, where they're, they're not edgy per se. They're fairly clean. I prefer clean comedy. And... I, I booked everything, but I prefer that. But I liked a little bit of everything. For example, I was one of the few clubs that I had a lot of comic magicians or comic jugglers or comic musicians or ventriloquists. You know, Jay Johnson from the TV show Soap uh, worked my club many times and is hilarious. Uh, th there's, there's Willie Tyler and Lester, another terrific uh, ventriloquial act. So um, I think what was interesting was that Sacramento was stuck with my sense of humor because I booked and produced the shows. <laughs> yep. But because I did like a little bit of everything, I think the audiences appreciated they got to see 
a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's fair. Um, what kind of shenanigans went up went on behind the scenes? Because I, I have to imagine if you're hanging out with comedians all day, okay. it's going to be more than just what you see on stage. Yeah, and, and it goes a little bit back to what you were saying about your story, Jerry, is that when uh, there was a great little story I share sometimes, is it was early um, 1981. I was sitting at a uh, cocktail table with Dave Poulier and Bob Saget after a show. We're just having drinks and kind of decompressing and talking about the evening. And all of a sudden, I noticed uh, Dave and Bob cracking each other up. And I wasn't included, right? And I'm the boss, right? And I'm like, hey, I'm not the third wheel on this date. What the hell's going on? And going to what you were saying earlier, Jerry, when you're a comic, it's the stuff that's a little over the top that makes you laugh. And Dave Coulier pulls out from under the table this little piece of paper where Bob Saget had grabbed some table lint and wrapped it up and then wrote on the paper, Dave, here's some of my pubic hair just for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just weird shit like that to crack themselves up. Yeah, I got to imagine as a comedian, uh, it's pretty hard to make yourself laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, uh, and as far as behind the stage stuff, I tried to keep a pretty clean room i mean it was the 80s and drugs were pretty prevalent and I, you know they were nightclubs so i had bars so i had to monitor the drinking i didn't allow drugs in the club but one time um uh john fox who's a world famous road comic he never became a household name but in the comedy world he's a legend as a road comic once chased me around the green room with a, a spoonful of coke uh you know come on <laughs> do it do it you can do it do it you know and uh, just, you know, crazy stuff. Uh, there was another time, God, I never told this story, but um, Jeff Altman, who's done a, done a ton of uh, Tonight Shows and, and Letterman Shows, a very talented stand-up comic, uh, asked if he could use The Office. And I was like, you know, and he had this girl in tow. And all about, you know, 10 minutes later, he comes out of the, office and the girl's going no thank you mr altman <laughs> i hope that's not too risque for your audience no oh, that God, reminds God. me of uh what i was what i was telling grizz today I, I read an article about uh i don't remember exactly where this was and i also don't remember what flavor bear this was but it was brown so it's a good size bear and uh somehow this bear stumbled across 15 million dollars worth of cocaine and he ate it all that's no, I don't know how much eating all of the cocaine is. I have to assume it's really all of it. Obviously, it killed him. And I have to imagine that for at least 10 minutes, this was an Avengers level apex predator. <laughs> I had questions That's like completely unstoppable until million? he dropped dead. Yeah, that that bear went out in a, in a special way. <laughs> <laughs> My thing is, was it 15 millions like pile of cocaine and he had just eaten some or did he have 15 million dollars worth of cocaine in his belly? Like, cause that's different. And more importantly, is it recoverable? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I hadn't heard that story, but I'm, I bet that was uh, one uh, uh, hyper bear for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though, going back a couple of minutes, you've mentioned a few times that you like uh, a clean set. Is that a personal preference or do you have like a reason as a producer to seek that out? Well, good question, Jerry. For me as a producer, my job as a, operator of an a room was to prepare entertainers for their next step for television 
right? Mm -hmm. Even, you know, this was before cable, really, but even cable, it, you're going to go farther in the industry if you're clean. So that doesn't mean you couldn't drop an F-bomb or you couldn't tell a dick joke. It just meant that if you wanted to do the Tonight Show or the Merv Griffin Show or the Mike Douglas Show, any of the shows that were stepping stones to getting your own sitcom, um, you needed to have a clean set. Now, that doesn't mean your whole, you know, my headliners would do 45 minutes to an hour. That doesn't mean you had to necessarily be squeaky clean. And we don't want the audience to think it was boring. We're talking mm -hmm. really funny shit. It just doesn't have to um, press all the, be that edgy. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah and, and so my job was to prepare them for a bigger career in comedy. Now that doesn't mean I didn't have what we call blue comics. There was a famous one named Jack Marion. Very, very funny. But his whole set was about vaginas and dicks and sex. <laughs> and, you know, so we used to book it as a blue show. You know, you're going to hear stuff your grandma doesn't want to hear if you come yeah. to this show. And he that never did right TV audience. and was fine never doing TV, right? But, um, uh, for example, I was I had uh, Dana Carvey work for me a lot. And um, I was working with him and his he did comedy and music and impressions and dialects. He was very talented. And uh, we were sitting in a jacuzzi after a show one night and uh, we're having drinks. And he goes, man, I'm like, I'm excited and nervous. And I go, hey, what's going on? He goes, I just got a phone call from Lorne Michaels. They're flying me to New York to showcase for Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And we we're like, wow, what a great moment to share with Dana. But he was both nervous and excited because that's huge pressure. You know, Absolutely. you can't go back to New York and do Saturday Night Live. You can't do dick jokes, right? You can't, <laughs> you can't drop F-bombs. And this is back in the uh, 80s and 90s when there was still some criteria to what you can do on TV mm. and pre-cable. So, um, you know, of course, he ended up having a huge career, ended up doing all the movies with Mike Myers, had two movies himself. Uh, a, a really terrific stand-up comic, but anybody that's in professional comedy has to be thinking about what's coming. Mm. And my job was to guide them. That doesn't mean they all listened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guarantee it. I mean, I guess back then, it, you know, you're talking about them all going towards a sitcom. It seems now, I don't know many comedians in sitcoms. Now they're going all towards, they're having their own, you know, specials, well, their own special, and then they're moving yeah. on to movies. Yeah, it's a different world, Grizz. Uh, back then, you wanted to get The Tonight Show because, for example, uh, Ray Romano did The Tonight Show and boom, he had Everybody Loves Raymond, his own sitcom. Or, you know, uh, Jay Leno did it and ended up being the host. I mean, mm. it, they were the talk shows were stepping stones to the next level, even beyond that. But some comics, you know, they stop at every level. Some comics are always open micers. Some mm -hmm. comics are always going to just play comedy clubs. Some comics go off and do just TV or TV warm up. Others go corporate and only do corporate shows. I have plenty of comedy friends and all they do are cruises. You know, they, they do shows on cruise ships and that's their career. Uh, it's still a great career. They make a lot of money. They get to see the world, mm -hmm. but they'll never have their own sitcom. Um, yeah. In this day and age, it's gotten so... Um, difficult to get us they don't even do sitcoms like the old days but now there's cable and there's there's all the networks like um 
well, you mentioned a few. There's there's so many. Back then, it wasn't there wasn't even Comedy Central, and now you got uh, Hulu and all these other Netflix doing custom shows. Mm. So you could have a special on Netflix, and you might have ten thousand people see you that make you kind of a star. But you're not going to get the celebrity that you would have done if you did the Tonight Show back when everybody watched the Tonight Shows. Does that kind of yeah. make sense? Oh, yeah. 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 Grizz and I have talked about this uh, actually pretty frequently recently that the we'll call it the entertainment industry as a whole. It's super saturated because, you know, obviously the Internet and anyone can make anything and publish it now. You know, the podcast arena specifically is what we talk about. YouTube. There's so many podcasts. Uh, right. We're actually in. I don't know what the percentage is anymore. It's it's up there. We're pretty high to the top in terms of successful podcasts just because we still exist. Yay. <laughs> Woo, good for us. It's like if you made it past like five episodes, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's well, I get crazy how low the bar is. Yeah, I get frustrated because they still showcase podcasts that quit putting out new content two years ago, mm -hmm. but yeah. they're still on the best comedy list. I was like, come on, they're not even working at it. You know, I'm two and a half years in. I have 150 something shows in the can, and mm -hmm. uh, my audience continues to build. It's not, you know, the most popular. You know, I'm not a superstar, even though I interview lots of celebrities. Um, I'm not getting 10,000 views a show, right? I'm mm -hmm. still yeah. uh, getting maybe 2,000 views a month. I mean, I'm way down there. But like you said, that still makes us amongst the most successful because so many people. I hate to, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but they flake. Yeah. Well, the it's entertainment industry everyone. is full of flakes. Yeah. Sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Well, no, I mean, the podcast world's a lot of work, but it, it does, it did drive me nuts when I would listen to them and I'd, I'd start listening to a guy or a girl or whatever and five episodes in, that's all you got. And you're like, damn it, I was enjoying yeah. this one. Yeah, we feel that way sometimes about uh, TV shows. My wife and I will think something's really unique and different and we'll get excited about it. And it lasts like one or two seasons. You know, the, the sad part about Hollywood is they just want to re they don't, there's no new ideas. There's nothing creative. They just reboot stuff. I mean, how many Batman movies do we need? Yeah, no shit. I often like in that case, I often think of mash. If you've ever heard the story of how mash went to 11 seasons and I think still holds like crazy records. They were supposed to get canceled after three seasons, but the producer's wife loved the fucking show. So he's like, well, I'm not going to get rid of it. My wife loves it. And then it went on to be the biggest show in America for, so it, the reruns still run. Everything's still like as expensive as it ever was if you want to buy it. Well, and, and look at the shows. The 80s. Yeah. Look at the shows like the original Star Trek or uh, um, Firefly, I think, that mm -hmm. they'd only did a few a season or two and they were gone, and then now they have a huge audience. I also think that the nowadays with the shows, it could all come down to timing, right? If you put down a show and it's just not the world's not ready for it, but it blows up ten years later, you know, mm -hmm. I yeah, think it's, they it's run a, into that a lot. It's a weird thing, and uh, so Scott, I've actually uh, I'm in more than just a podcast arena. I'm uh, a <laughs> bit of a producer myself. Hey, <laughs> what are you doing? You doing live shows? No, no, his head, Scott. <laughs> no, 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 no live shows. So I do uh, what I've been most successful with is uh, commercial video content, I do stuff for companies and whatnot. And I'm actually branching out. Thank you. I'm actually branching out now into narrative films. Wow. Currently, plan, 
currently planning one to film later this year. But uh, it's a really weird space because there's so much content and most of it's actually garbage, if I'm being honest. I mean, a lot of these people work really hard at it, but a lot of them just are not good at it. And it varies everything else. Mm. Well, I hope you send me some samples of your work, but the fact that you're producing commercials for clients, which means you're getting paid, which makes you a professional, mm. uh, means you've already taken an important step. A lot of people are creative or they have good ideas or they have technique, but if they can't pull it all together, um, they'll, they'll never be a business, yeah. right? I mean, as much as I talk about the art form stand-up comedy and how artistic and creative it is, uh, as Grizz mentioned earlier, if you don't have the business acumen to make it work, mm -hmm. it's not going to get anywhere. No one's going to see it. Yeah. And um, coming across a lot of other people who do similar work, the biggest reason most of them never get anywhere, whether, you know, you don't have to be famous to quote unquote, make it in an in entertainment industry, but a lot of them never get anywhere because that's their biggest shortcoming. They have no idea that it's more than just having a good idea and recording it. On that note, when you first started your first comedy club, how like how bad was that? Like in the beginning, how rough was that? Well, I didn't have any money. I was just a kid. I literally wheeled and dealed my way into the banquet room of a restaurant. And the deal was I got the door and they got the food and drink. So every day they'd have a banquet. I'd have to go in and do the labor to break down their banquet, set up my comedy club. Then I did the door. Then I emceed the show. And then after the show, I had to break down my comedy club. That happened every night. So it was a lot of hard ass work, but I was young. I was excited and I lost my ass financially for about six, seven months. Mm -hmm. But then it started to turn a profit. And by a year and a half, I was doing so well. The restaurant tried to force me out and take over my club, mm. but I'd gotten a secret word on it and I built a club right across the street and they asked me to leave on a Saturday and I opened my new club on a Tuesday. <laughs> so, <nice. laughs> uh, and they, they tried to re they tried to copy what I did and they went out of business in three weeks. Was it hard to get your first comedian in the door? No, because as I mentioned in my story, I'd already gone to LA and I'd already made a connection with Dave Coulier. Well, after I came up and quit my job, I went back to LA and I hung out at the improv and the comedy store. And all I did, I didn't even go for the shows. I was talking to comics and I was collecting names and phone numbers. Yep. And, and I was talking to the managers. What do you charge? You know, where do you make your money? How do you advertise? I, I've started over a dozen companies, Grizz, but I... I do all of them by talking to people already in the industry and then i make up my own so i wanted to open a construction company i talked to people that did that kind of work and then i went and opened my own you know in the comedy business i went and talked to other club owners and comics one of the reasons my club was so popular with the comics was early on i learned it's important to respect the comics and treat them like the stars that they are mm -hmm. a lot of clubs you know, the comics are just the meat this week, right? Mm -hmm. They don't treat them very well at all. They got a shitty place to put them up. They don't yeah, pay them much. They, you know, they, they treat them like, you know, do the job. I can replace you in a second. Yeah. Me, I had a nice place for them to stay. I provided a car for them to drive around. We gave them free food, drink after the shows. We, we treated them with respect. And as long as they respected the club and my staff, because I had a lot of young women working for me, um, 
they were treated professionally because that's how I thought felt them. To me, they were professionals. That's a big differentiator because no matter where you are, nobody wants to work for an asshole. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and let's not uh, uh, beat around the bush too much. A lot of people thought I was a huge asshole. I mean, <laughs> I was the king of my own world. Oh, I made the rules. Company. I'm sorry? You're running your own company. <laughs> right, right. I was the one taking all the risk. You know, if there was a lawsuit or if somebody got hurt or a comic didn't show up for the show, which happens sometimes, mm -hmm. I was responsible. My audience paid money, hard-earned money to see a show. It's my job to give them that. So if a comic flaked, I had to be prepared to take care of it. I imagine back then that that was even more of a thing because for them to contact you, they were probably finding a payphone. <laughs> yeah it was there was no cell phones um i showcase people by either seeing them personally or get this everybody if you remember what they are i would get stacks and stacks of vhs tapes <laughs> i remember me too now you had spoken please about be kind you, and rewind <laughs> you, <laughs> blockbuster uh you would let them drink but after the show did you ever run into every any um this did you ever run into any issues to where you had to either kick a, a comedian out beforehand because they had an issue they had you know abuse problems or anything like that well i of course just like any nightclub uh part of the job is dealing with uh drunks whether it's the audience uh or entertainers uh or myself i went on stage drunk once and made such <laughs> a fool of myself uh i never allowed you know i drank every night but i never got drunk you know you set limits and the comics you know, they were doing drugs and they were drinking, but I would not let them go on stage if I was aware, intoxicated, because I felt they can, you know, my job was to make them be a professional mm. and that my audience paid money and that they had to um, respect that and give the audience everything they paid for. And now they may suck. That's different. That's, <laughs> you know, comedic uh, learning. You know, there's people that go up and bomb. We've all bombed. But if you went up impaired, either through drugs or alcohol, uh, yeah, it could affect you. Now, the short answer is no, I never fired anybody for that. I did fire two acts in the history of the club, but it was not for uh, drinking. What was it for, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I, I didn't want to, you know, go out on a ledge, but uh, one of them was just not funny. His name was <laughs> Bill Kirkenbauer. He was he did a lot of headlining back in the day. But he went up on stage and by the third night, he was just, I was paying him a lot of money and he just wasn't uh, performing up to the standard that I thought he should. And I sent him home, but I paid him because that was my mistake, not his. Mm -hmm. uh, he just wasn't funny for what I was paying, you know, money for laughs yeah. per minute. Yep. But the one that's an interesting story, and you may have heard of this guy, Bill Maher, yeah, yeah. famous <laughs> political comic. Well, he was working my club back in the 90s, and he was he still is an arrogant asshole. And he was up on stage. And, you know, we get those. You know, you have to oh, deal yeah. with the, the, those kind of people when you're in show business. That's fine. I could do that. But he disrespected my audience. He was on stage, and he was talking, you know, politics in Washington, D.C., and throwing out names of senators and throwing out, you know, hey the bill ab 2020 is doing this just talking way over the heads of any normal audience yep and he got about halfway through the show and he wasn't getting any laughs and mm -hmm. it was a uh, uh he'd only been there two nights 
it was uh, Thursday night, and he stopped halfway through, and he goes, you know what? You people here in Sacramento are just stupid. This is funny shit, and you just don't know what's going on in the world. You're just stupid. And he walked Blame off the stage. audience. Yeah. I fired his ass on the spot, and I sent him home without any money because people have to understand when they're entertaining, people are paying hard-earned money, like I said earlier, for a show. The the entertainers there for the audience the audience isn't there for the entertainers that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah absolutely mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know th that's uh, it, it just pissed me off so much that he was such an asshole and so arrogant that you know he's better than everybody and because you know he's a smart guy and he was probably saying smart material but if you don't talk to your audience if you don't relate to your audience if you don't understand you're there and you're getting paid to entertain people that paid money, you don't deserve to be in the business. Now, of course, me firing him really hurt his career. Nobody's heard of him since. <laughs> I mean, my problem is when I think politics, I don't think comedy. Like, I, that's just going to, it's going to aggravate me. So even if it is funny, I'm probably not going to laugh too much. But I think you also, you probably won over your crowd when they when they saw that you were sticking up for them and you kicked them out of there and they're like all right this guy at least cares about us i'll come back you must be one of those stupid people people from sacramento <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly i mean i'm part of we the audience right i'm paying him <laughs> to be entertained no it you know the audience really didn't know what was going on and what i did at the moment was uh bring the feature act back up to do some more material so they got their money's worth mm -hmm. um and a couple of people that got upset i just gave them refunds or free mm -hmm. tickets to come back. But uh, um, it was just one of those situations where you don't understand what he's thinking. You know, he forgot his role. He became unprofessional at that moment. Now he went on to fame and fortune and he can buy and sell me 10 times over and I'm <laughs> happy for his success. But um, that kind of arrogance is to me, not uh, attractive to anybody. Mm. And you're right, Grizz, politics ruins everything, whether it's in our school system, <laughs> whether it's in our health care, whether it's, you know, in show Thank business, you, Scott. <laughs> it doesn't belong anywhere but uh, Washington, D.C., in my mind. That's that's my soapbox moment. <laughs> so you uh, you had mentioned earlier, you know, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody by now that the entertainment and comedy industry is totally different. And I, I want to say it was last year I briefly considered and then very quickly changed my mind, uh, doing stand-up comedy. Oh, now, I decided not to, stage. no, I never made <laughs> it. So I, I don't have a problem bombing in front of people. I've looked like an idiot enough to be totally comfortable with it. Yeah, but, we have this show. <laughs> exactly, but I do too many other things and decided it wasn't worth the hassle with how sensitive people are. Now, if someone was a little more persistent than in, I was with it, do you think that's a good idea even today? Well, First off, my advice would be to at least try it once or twice. And whether you bomb or not, you're going to find that you learn something about yourself and you're probably funnier than you think you are because people respect the people in the audience if they're paid and it's not a papered room, uh, respect the fact that you had the balls to get up there in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not quite to the level of a musician. We've all seen a musician that does a horrible job with a song. And yet when they finish, we all applaud anyway because- mm -hmm. Well, they tried, and it's yeah. something we can't do, right? So in stand-up comedy, I always encourage people to 
give it a shot because it's cathartic. It's, it's healthy to share and to engage with strangers on that level. Now, as far as how difficult it is in this audience, I would tell people to still try it, but try to take the comedy to the stage in your voice. In other words, don't adapt to the losers out there that are the woke people out there. Be who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I think people respect when you're real. Mm-hmm. And if there's comedy in it, you know, it's no secret that a lot of comedy that's successful is talking about going grocery shopping or being a parent or being in an airplane or or going to church. Why? Because we all do that. So we can mm-hmm. all relate to it. Mm-hmm. And what makes it interesting and, and can make it funny if you can make it a joke is that we all have a different perspective. Because even though we all get in an airplane, we have a different perspective of what is funny and what isn't. So if you're just true to your own voice and talk to how you interacted or you dealt with that situation in a humorous way, you'll be a success. I also think that like you like you were saying before, Scott, we're we're heading up. Hopefully we're we're heading back down, but I think we're heading up on this whole everyone getting offended on every on everything. And it's going to take an entertainer, whether that be a comedian or it's a movie or whatnot, that all of a sudden just snaps it. And all of a sudden we've had complete opposite direction. And so you never know if you're trying to get into comedy, it could be you. You could be that guy or gal or whatever that completely reverses it. And next thing we know, comedy is back to what we all know and love. Well, I think it's already starting. I mean, the, all the crap with Will Smith and then uh, Chris Rock and there's there's been things were already happening that people are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is comedy. Mm. You know, (laughs) if if you don't like it, don't go to a comedy show. You know, if you're going to be offended, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. Why are you you watching it? Why are you going? Yeah. That's, I mean, isn't that, you know, it's like going to an art gallery and going, I hate that piece. Well then don't (laughs) look at it. (laughs) Oh, that's bad. Move on. Yeah. Actually, I've actually seen people have full on meltdowns at, live comedy shows at the comedy clubs because of that i actually love really? to sit up front yeah 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 so they you know if you're sitting up front you're asking for trouble if you can't handle that oh absolutely but i've seen people stand up and start screaming and storm out where <laughs> i'm just a typical knucklehead i'm like yeah i do have that flaw tell me more <laughs> <laughs> well you know and that's one of the reasons that grizz asked early on why did i sell out of the business First off, 20 years and anything's plenty. Yeah. I went on to you know, start other businesses, uh, just ref- retired from another one. And the problem with today's audience is, or being a comic in today's world is, it is much harder than it used to be. And at the same time, it's easier because you don't really have to go on stage. You could do mm-hmm. a video and put it on YouTube or, or you know, there's other ways, a podcast. There's other ways to share your message, to share your material without maybe putting yourself in uh, danger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I hate to say that because you really shouldn't put yourself in danger <laughs> just being an entertainer. But at least now we have live streaming and, and other ways you can communicate without you know that if someone's offended just tell them to turn it off right yeah absolutely there's a lot of value though in going on stage if you want to be an entertainer 
So I've never done stand up on stage, but I have been on stage for various other things. And I get the impression that if you decide you want to be a stand up comedian and you really, really, really suck, they're still going to laugh because that's funny too. <laughs> Sometimes it's so funny because you were talking about what's funny to a comic. When one comic sees another comic bomb, that could be the funniest thing they've seen mm -hmm. all week, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's only because they can relate to when they bomb. It's it's Absolutely. not it's not laughing at them, it's laughing with them. Mm -hmm. And that's a big difference. You know, you were talking earlier, Grizz, about the audiences. I think that's one of the things that people have forgotten is we're all laughing together. We're not laughing at someone. You know, mm -hmm. even if I pick on a guy with an ugly sweater and, you know, and say, mm -hmm. what did your mother-in-law buy you that or your girlfriend to mark her territory? You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm making fun of him, but I'm not really making fun of him. I'm making mm -hmm. fun of the situation for everyone's benefit. Is, is that I know that's a maybe a thin line to some people, but I think there's a difference. I, I think it 100%. a thin line to some people, but I think the, pe the type of people who go to comedy clubs for the most part are absolutely on track with you. Except for that random guy who flips out. How the hell, the hell did he get there? It, you know what happened? It was there. People were going. They said, oh, we'll invite this guy, Bob. You don't invite Bob next time. Right. He's an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Everybody listening. Don't invite Bob. <laughs> He's a dick. He shouldn't be there. You don't want to bring him in the first place. Why are you bringing him? Well, you know, wouldn't you think that if you have a date or even if you're out with your buddies and you choose to go to a comedy club, aren't you kind of assuming it's going to be a bastion of free speech and you don't know what you're going to hear? Isn't that kind of the definition? I mean, how stupid are you to have a thin skin and be really woke and get offended easily? So let's go where that shit happens. I mean, it makes yeah. no sense. <laughs> Although it could be like a Will Smith kind of moment and, you know, your girlfriend gets offended and all of a sudden she wants you to go smack dude. Like, well, it just happens. <laughs> I think we all agree that was not handled well, but uh, uh, no. it, it is. I love great... the memes that came out of it, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's, uh, you know, it's a 20 year stretch in the entertainment industry. What do you go to when you retire from that? Well, I, I, I've done several things. I was a, uh, uh, I owned a travel agency for a number of years because you get free cruises and discounts and it was kind of a way to vacation on the on the cheap and uh uh it was fun being involved in travel um i was a and this sounds totally you know going uh blue collar but i was a fleet director for a ford store and i put together uh, all the cars for a police force and fire department in a new town um my last company i owned an insurance agency for the last 15 years i mean i can't think of anything more boring but what I've done all my life, all my different companies were about customer service. And I'm a customer service professional. So whether I was selling cars or doing comedy in a or selling food at a restaurant or selling art in my art galleries or selling insurance, like I said, it was all about the customer service. So in the whole history of our Scott Edwards, it was about customer service, whatever the product was. Um, and then I always got fired when I worked for somebody else. I mean, always. <laughs> and so well, you I, know, I, I could point out that it seems like it's because you work for the benefits. You got, you got free insurance, <laughs> free comedy shows, free travel. Yeah. That's you're, what you're, you're all about. You're on the nose, Jerry. <laughs> people, people aren't so quick to figure that out. <laughs> 
Um, in fact, uh, when I owned the comedy clubs, I was pretty successful. I'll, I'll use that as a transit to the story about the submarine. I had invested in a company called Subsea Systems. I'm still an owner. They do underwater snorkeling all around the world. It's called Snuba. If you're ever traveling in the Caribbean, Mexico, Hawaii, the Red Sea, anywhere in the world, it's called Snuba. It's everywhere. And I became friends with those guys. And all of a sudden, they invited me to uh, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, to help them launch a submarine. So I was helping build this thing there. And I go, you know, I like this. I want one of these. So I bought a submarine and I put it in Monterey, California. It ran for about a year and a half as a tourist submarine, but Cal uh, Monterey had too cold a water. The water in California is too cold and there was a problem with algae bloom. So I had mm. to pay a diver to clean the windows for the people to see the fish and the sea lions and the sea otters and the kelp forest. And it just got way too expensive and the whole thing blew up and I lost my ass. <laughs> but uh, I did sell the uh, submarine to the Wrigley Gum family, and it's still operating off of Catalina Island in Southern California. <laughs> but I was only able to do weird adventures like that because of my success in comedy. The other one was uh, I owned a beach shack in Hawaii for a little over five years. And what I, just to go what you're saying, Jerry, why did I own a beach shack in Hawaii? every time I flew <laughs> over, it was a tax write-off, you know? And while I was there, I got free use of all the um, events that I sold, right? Because at a beach shack, you're renting towels and you're, you know, putting lotion on pretty girls in bikinis. By the way, did I mention I was single at the time? <laughs> and uh, uh, you, you sell uh, things to do, like going, you know, uh, parasailing or jet skis. Well, you could do all that for free when you own the beach shack. So I did that for five years as well. So I think the moral to that story is, you know, you got to have fun with life, so even if you lose money. After all these years and all these careers, can you actually retire? Like, is there a point where you, you personally can retire from things or is it not possible to you? No, if no. Someday you're going to be fucking selling skydiving and croaking. <laughs> it, it's just the next step, you know? So I, I, I went from... Uh, Spinning records as a DJ uh, during the disco days, don't picture that, uh, to owning a, a chain of comedy clubs, to um, a couple other part, you know, jobs where I was in charge, but I didn't own. But the uh, insurance agency, I was able to retire and get some income off that. So now I'm going for my next adventure. And I've been a podcaster for a couple of years. But I think what I'm going to do is put together a podcast network of everything to do with stand-up comedy. So I know a lot of stand-up comics that do podcasts, a mm. couple that do blogs, a couple that do videos, and I'm going to pull it all together into one tight unit. And uh, that'll be my uh, next adventure in business. So again, you're never going to fully retire. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't retire either. No, you can't. I, I'll tell you, I know a few people older than me. And if you stop doing things, that's you're when dropped. you die. You got to keep yeah, moving, keep active. Yeah, you can die. You can die using uh, some of your free perks. It's a better way to go. <laughs> exactly. Have Go out with a smile on your face, right? Exactly. I, I think the, the next thing I should do is, is be some sort of sex therapist. I think that way I'll die with a huge <laughs> smile. Oh, that's how that bear went. 
I bear with uh, a massive <laughs> smile. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there were some female bears just happy they didn't run into him. You know, shit. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting to me that you had a submarine. Uh, I assume it's uh, an exploration type because it had windows. Uh, but that's been on my Christmas list every year for the last <laughs> five years. And my dad finally broke down and bought me one. And uh, it was this big. Oh, oh, okay. It was remote control. I don't have it. So it wasn't pad, one of so. those baking soda ones, right? No. Yeah. Uh, but interesting enough, Briz and I actually work on submarines. We do. You do. We do. Mm-hmm. That's our day job because not the ones that you doesn't can purchase. Bills. Though. <laughs> oh wait, wait, wait! Do you guys work for Subway? <laughs> yes. You're doing exactly. submarine sandwiches. <laughs> How'd you know? Uh, how much can we divulge here, Grizz? <laughs> well, there's not much. <laughs> we work on big, they're black. <laughs> we work on the big black ones. Yep. Oh, military. For yeah, for the Navy. Um, well, thank you for your service. Um, I've had a chance to um, tour a couple, you know, uh, a nuclear sub and one of the older World War II subs. And uh, um, it's amazing that environment that people lived in. Uh, the claustrophobia, the mm-hmm. the scariness of it all. Um, you know, my sub was big and a lot of glass and it was for tourists. We sat about 60 people and and it was for there for them to be able to see underwater and explore underwater without getting wet. But a real submariner, um, my hat's off to you. That is a uh, really exciting but uh, uh, different kind of experience. Well, we're not uh, technically submariners. I should point that uh, out. Okay. We, Contractors. <laughs> yeah. So we uh, we test the submarine, make sure that it's not going to kill the submariners. Oh, well, I still think that would be very exciting. And if you ever need anybody to be your Sherpa and carry your luggage, let me know. <laughs> it's not as claustrophobic as I thought it would be. <clears throat> well, the bigger ones today are, are way different than from yeah. World War II. Like yeah. I said, I've been on both and, and it's like night and day. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Andy and I have been out actually together uh on a submarine. We, we went out to sea. We did cuddle. Uh Wait, is, no this, real is this the quote unquote watching the submarine races? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that it's true what they say. Hundred men go down, fifty couples come up. Grizz and I have never been closer. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, well, we did uh, actually we did sleep literally right up against each other. Yeah. Well, it's a good way to stay warm. How did you end up in, in that industry? Uh, are you electricians? I mean, what's your specialty? Our, our specialty is the mechanical systems. And actually, okay. it's, it's a, an interesting conversation I had at the interview uh, because it is a standard job that you interview for. And I walked in, they, we sat down and talked about what they do. And they said to me, Jerry, what do you know about submarines? And I said, well, I've never even seen one. It's a big machine underwater. It's funny. It's complete fluke that I ever worked there as well. My wife, my wife was doing, um, she worked for what was the equivalent of uh, like the Red Cross and she was doing blood draws at the company. She's like, Hey, they got job openings. And I was tired of my boss at the time. And so I said, fuck it. I'll, I was a mechanic for cars and trucks. And so I looked up just mechanic for job openings. So I didn't know what the hell I was getting into. Nothing at all. I didn't even know if I was going to be working on the boats. Went in, same thing. What do you know about submarines? Nothing. You ever <laughs> seen one? Nope. <laughs> nope. They hired you anyway. Yeah. Well, we, we do have an extensive background in mechanical things. Everything that's on a submarine, I've worked on before. Now, my, my reason, very different from Grizz's reason for working there, 
Uh, I used to work in an industry where I was on call all the time and I had no personal life. It, right. No matter right. what I was doing, my job invaded my life. So I went here. So I had a stable schedule specifically so that I could do uh, other things. Have work. A life. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's no, why I now uh, have time for podcasting. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned that first girlfriend, soon to be wife, soon to be ex-wife. Um, when you, when I had the comedy clubs and a lot of my businesses to be a successful entrepreneur, you really have to put a hundred percent into it. It's like having a wife. I mean, it's a full-time job. Yeah. It's your marriage, right? You it's, it's something that you're putting your whole life into day and night. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the customer service, even as an insurance agent, which is totally opposite from a comedy club, you're on call 24 seven when your clients have an emergency or have a problem. So you have to be able to cope with that. But um, I wasn't successful in marriage when I had the comedy clubs, because that was my focus. Mm. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say it was my fault. I think there's other extenuating <laughs> circumstances. But still, my first wife, um, I was only home for a few, you know, I'd come home at three, four in the morning, I'd sleep for a few hours, and I was back at work by noon. And so I wasn't, uh, you know, able to take her out at night or do things. She want to go out. I go, well, come on into the club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I bet the club was open every day of the week, too. Yeah. We always had something going on. But I think it's fascinating that you guys are mechanics on submarines. What a small <laughs> world. And, is, and that's how you guys met, became friends. That's exciting. Have you yeah. done a podcast just about submarines? We actually haven't. We actually haven't really divulged into our personal lives that much. No, because no, it's government, you, I, it's, it's, we're not really sure how much we could even talk about without getting in trouble. Oh, well, I, I know how you feel. Uh, my wife is a federal law enforcement agent mm -hmm. and she comes home a lot and I go, how was your day? She goes, sorry, can't tell you. <laughs> yep. So she, she works for a, an anti-drug task force. Uh, for the federal government. And uh, a lot of what she does is time sensitive or, or she's got a top secret uh, uh, status. And so, you know, I just have learned over the years, don't even ask her about it. But mm, yeah. uh, um, it, it's fascinating that, uh, that what you said, Jerry, that it's a lot of what you see on a submarine or for a, a machine that goes underwater is not all that different than working on a car or a, mm -hmm. a farm equipment because a machine is a machine. You know, the gears work, the, the spark works or whatever's happening. Yeah, physically. Um, now the real, uh, one of the guys that's a, a comic, he turned into a comic, but he was uh, a specialist in uh, engineer on uh, nuclear sites. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy that did the, uh, figured out the piping for all the nuclear stuff in a, in a, in a nuclear power plant. And, you know, the same thing, it's like, how do you go from that to comedy? I'm right. And he was saying, well, guys don't go to comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, his example was, you know, working on a nuclear plant's very intense. It's very mm -hmm. tiring it, emotionally, everything you're doing you know, if you, if you screw up, it's like, if you're on stage and you do a bad joke, it's okay. You just move on. Right. Yeah. Mm. You, you do something wrong at a nuclear plant. You, you know, there's, there's heavy consequences. Mm. There are. And, and I'm sure dealing with a submarine, whether it's nuclear or the old diesel engine type or whatever you're working on, um, 
it, you know, you have to be, there's got to be some pressure to be that much more professional, that much more specific on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just get something kind of tight. You got to get it really tight. Yeah. There's no room for, uh, for not being perfect. Yeah. But I think it's fun that you guys go out and test them. Yeah, it is. It is a good time. Now we're the same assholes at work as we are right here, but the work itself, we take very seriously. <laughs> well, I think that's a good balance. And I think that's important to anybody uh, under 50 years old out there listening, that if you want to have a quality life, you got to find a balance. You know, those people that go work for the state and sit in a cubicle eight hours a day are not happy. You no. want to do something that you get joy during and after work and be able to have a balance and go see comedy. Yeah. Go see comedy. I actually, I take a lot of, uh, I, I take a lot of stock in the, the sort of thing that people like you, Scott say, cause you've, you know, you've gone through all this, you've been through the divorce because of the, the way that you were operating your business. Um, and I try to avoid those pitfalls and I basically live on a tightrope. not, I guess maybe Grizz isn't doing as much because he's just got the podcast, but I always have to really balance what I'm doing because I like my wife. I don't want to, I don't want to get another one Good for you. <laughs> well, you've nailed it so far, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think I just gave everybody the best advice you it's important to be focused on your work and everything you're doing to earn a living is important. Uh, whether you dig ditches or you work on submarines or own a comedy club, focus on your work, but balance that intensity with enjoying your life, having a good wife or a, a mate or a spouse or best friend, whatever it is, so that you're part of humanity and you're able to share uh, and communicate uh, everything that you need to to uh, keep yourself sane. And the people that go insane are the ones that don't know how to do the focus and at the same time enjoy life you know they they get too wrapped up in one thing so scott i think that that's a fantastic place to end that before grizz derails us again so where can uh where can everybody listen to your podcast and whatever else you got going on hey ladies and gentlemen out there if you want to have some comedy fun visit my website scottscomedystuff.com that's scottscomedystuff.com you'll find my online comedy course I have a video membership site. I have videos of all these famous acts on stage. I also just wrote a book called 20 Questions Answered about being a stand-up comic. It's available on Amazon. And hey, always feel free to reach out to me. If you have any questions about comedy or business, I'm happy to help. It's all part of my customer service um, and what I want to bring to everybody. And last, if you just want a good laugh, check out my podcast, Stand-Up Comedy your host and MC, where we celebrate 40 plus years on the fringe of show business. I interview the famous and not so famous. If you get a chance, check it out. Beautiful. Thank you for being on the show. It has been fantastic. Oh, it's been fun. You guys are great and some uh, great questions. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's been fun, Scott. Thanks, man. All right, Grizz, it's settled. I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. For what, like a day? Well, for the, until the first time I bomb. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. Um, listen, people, if you haven't ever been to a show, go to a show. So fun. So yeah, much if, fun. if you take nothing else away from this week's episode, let it be, go to a comedy show, especially dude, COVID COVID's not a thing apparently anymore. Go to a fucking show, right? Get out.
take the wife, the husband, not the kids. Get out, go to a show. <laughs> yeah, don't take the kids. That's a big mistake. I don't think they'd let them in anyways, but... I shared my version of comedy with my son, and now it's like living with a small Ryan Reynolds. It's not pleasant. <laughs> yeah, no, no thanks. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Scott was pretty fucking cool. He was pretty cool, man. I, I find it fascinating, all the shit he's done. You, you know he's going to collapse at... I don't even know how old the dude is, but you know he's going to collapse at work. So that's how it's going to go. Yeah, but he's going to love it. He's the uh, he's Absolutely. the entrepreneur version of a polymath. Does that, does that have a name? I don't even know. But I am a tad jealous of his lifestyle. I, you know, I, sh I should have thought of going into business for myself so that I had free shit too, but that never crossed my mind. He's way smarter than I am. Yeah, but like he said, you have to be married to the job. Yeah, and that yeah that's true. everything else suffers. If you're going to make it doing something, you have to make sacrifices. And he's like the perfect example of that. He, it cost him an entire marriage to mm. make it. He was, he's successful, in my opinion. He owned a submarine. Yeah, that's, 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 my, that's my mark of success. If you can buy a submarine, <laughs> you've made it. So when Jerry buys a submarine, that's when I get to tell him he's actually successful. Uh, you guys heard it in the show. I want a submarine. Someday, I'm going to own one. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. Don't you want to go to your home? Hmm. My fake plants died because I didn't pretend to water them. <laughs>